0: What we have in our passage today is is a group of disciples who have confessed Jesus as Christ, and we we applaud them for that. But at the same time, we recognize that what they have in their mind, the image of what they believe the Christ is, is tragically wrong. And so kind of to deal with this gap between what they have said and what they understand, there was a movie that came out uh, 20 or so years ago, a uh, science fiction movie. And I like science fiction movies because they have a, an interesting way of asking questions that we don't really contemplate very often. The movie that, that, that came out was a, a movie called Solaris. It had George Clooney in it. So, you know, it's anybody seen Solaris? All right. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a I mean, it, George Clooney's in it. So uh, that's one, one reason to watch it. But it's this interesting movie where this guy goes uh, into outer space to a a planet that has just been discovered and the planet's name is Solaris. And there's this weird power in the planet where the planet can read your memories and actually cause your memories to come back to life. And so George Clooney's character is going to this planet having just lost his wife to to a suicide. And so he is startled when he falls asleep and wakes up one morning and sees his wife now back in the flesh, alive and well, and suddenly he has back with him the the person that he loves the most. And he is enraptured with the fact that he has his his wife back. But as the movie progresses, we discover that this woman who looks and can be touched and can be conversed with is not actually his wife. The person that this is, is his memory of his wife. And as the the relationship progresses, we find out that this woman has major gaps of, 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 of emptiness in who she is because this man only knew her through his perception. And his perception was inaccurate. And so this woman that comes back is not actually his wife. He only had a memory of of her, and his memory was flawed. The memory isn't the real person. And so it brings to the fore this, this, this reality that we can think we know someone, but what we actually know is just what we want to know about that person. And so there is a difference between reality and perception. We can think we know someone, but not actually know them. And that's actually what's happening with the disciples in our text. The disciples know Jesus as the Christ. But what they think the Christ means is so far different from what a Christ Jesus came to be, that their perception of him as the Christ is greatly separated from the reality of Jesus as the Christ. I I believe that this is something that has has been true of all people through all ages, not just the original disciples. I mean, I I went to Google Images and just typed in Jesus. And here are some pictures of Jesus that you can find on, on the internet. I don't know if you can see them very well, but the very first image is is Jesus wrapping President Donald Trump with a hug. And the the second one is is Jesus wearing a multicolored coat with the sign, Jesus was a liberal. And then the third one, maybe my favorite, is Jesus helping a little kid learn to play baseball with the uh, line, Jesus is my coach. And you can get that trophy uh, with football or track. They sell them in all different varieties. All of this is fan art. This is art about Jesus created to reflect a a segment of society that sees Jesus through that lens. And yet we would say, how could Jesus be all three of these people? Right There are are incompatibilities, and there are blind spots that are actually shared by all three. None of those Jesuses look very Middle Eastern to me, right? We we have a, a, a habit in our own life and culture of seeing Jesus as the Jesus we want him to be. So this issue that the disciples are are grappling with is an issue that still exists today. We conform Jesus to the image, to to the ideas, to the preferences, to the perspectives that we most prefer. And so, as we look at this passage, we are not just studying a historical occurrence of of seeing uh, these disciples being corrected. We come to it with a fundamental question Do we know the real Jesus? These are just, those pictures are just blatant uh, aberrations. But, But if we got into our own minds, do we know the real Jesus? And this text presents the crux, the essential piece of information that we need to compare the Jesus that we believe in to the Jesus that is actually the real Jesus. Because in this passage, Jesus boils down the essential truth of who the real Jesus is. Now, I want to say on the top, uh, this is going to be a challenging message. Um, this is going to ask penetrating questions. Parts of this sermon to some uh, may be abrasive, may be uh, unwelcome, uncomfortable. It, it was to me as I, as I worked through it. But I do believe that, that what we have here is an essential piercing through any misperceptions about Jesus. Because the worst thing is for us to continue on with a Jesus of our imagination when it is only the Jesus of Scripture that truly saves. Amen? So we're going to go through this passage, and we're going to see three facts that we must accept to ground our faith in the real Jesus. Three facts that we must accept to ground our faith in the real Jesus. They come straight out of our passage we, as we look at the first one. The real Jesus came to die. The real Jesus came to die. As, as Jesus begins to explain, he, the, Mark says, the, he ex, explains to them that the Son of Man must suffer. Now, to, 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 to realize how strange and uh, jarring. These words, the Son of Man must suffer, was to the original audience, to the original disciples, to understand why Peter heard this and rebuked Jesus. I mean, like, how dare you say such garbage is essentially what what Peter does. To understand why he had such a visceral, strong response, we must grasp where the, the mindset of of the Messiah was in the first century, and so I'm actually going to spend a little time on a, on a bit of a historical lesson. I want us to, to grasp what has been happening in Israel from the, the time of Alexander the Great all the way to the Roman emperor Vespasian, Alexander the Great. so this is going to cover 300 years, almost 400 years. but this helps us understand where the disciples are, to, to, to listen to some of these major geopolitical happenings that, that, that have come before Jesus shows up. So in 331 BC, none of this will be on the test, but just to give you an idea of how much time has passed, 331 B.C., Alexander the Great conquers the known world. He conquers the, the Persian Empire, who was the previous empire who was in control of Israel. But the Persian Empire had kind of given Israel a, an existence of semi-autonomy right? If you go back to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the the people of Israel got to rebuild the temple. They got to rebuild Jerusalem. They got to experience a little bit of autonomy. They got to experience a little bit of the end of exile, but they were still under foreign oppression. When Alexander the Great comes in, he conquers the known world, and now he rules the world. But of course. He doesn't last very long, he gets sick, and in 323 BC he dies. And his kingdom, especially the Middle East area, is divided between his generals. And we have now uh, a a group of empires, one by the Seleucids and one by the Ptolemies. And they end up fighting over who owns Israel. But eventually the the, the Seleucids, they become the conquerors, the, the, the people who have Israel under their foot. And they begin to expect Israel to pay tribute, to pay a heavy tax as they are in uh, occupation. One of the leaders of the Seleucids is Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, and he becomes a a megalomaniac. And he decides in 167 BC, so now he's passed about 150 years, that he is going to take the Jerusalem temple and make it a temple to himself. And so he completely uh, sacrileges or sacralizes the the temple. And he, he does sacrifices to himself a human in that temple. And so the temple is considered absolutely stained and corrupted. Which leads in 164 BC for the Jews to finally take up arms and finally fight for themselves. And there's this group of people called the Maccabees. And uh, you can read about them in uh, um, the, the books of the Bible called 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees. They aren't in your Bible. They're, they're, um, they're in between the New, Old and New Testament. But the, the Maccabees fight and take over the temple in 164 B.C. And then finally in 144 B.C., the Maccabees take over the whole land of Israel. So for the first time in hundreds of years, the, the place of Israel is ruled by people of Israel. And there are 80 years where the Maccabees have independence in, in, uh, in Israel, but the Maccabees, they kind of let the power get to them. And they started selling different positions, like the priest positions, and and they began to give political favors. And so even though the Maccabees had one independence, they had one independence, but they had made a lot of the religious life of Israel very impure. And the the reason that the groups like the Pharisees come to pass is because they are trying to purify a corrupt lifestyle that the Maccabees introduced into, into the world. So for 80 years, though, we have independence and we had it through a military takeover through these group, this group called the Maccabees. Then in 64 BC, though, Rome conquers all of Israel, and the whole time of independence is over. In 20 BC, Rome puts the, the family of Herod in charge, and we know how wonderful it was to live under the oppressive power of Herod. Finally, in around 20 A.D., we have all the Roman governors like Pontius Pilate and such that rule Jerusalem and continue to take tribute. Finally, in 70 A.D., which is about 30 years after uh, the time of Jesus, or 40 years after the time of Jesus, this man, Vespasian, the Roman emperor, destroys an, an uprising in Israel and completely destroys the temple. I try to go through that kind of quickly, and the reason I want you, what I really want you to grasp is that Peter and John and all of these disciples have lived for hundreds of years hoping for independence, hoping for the the world of of Israel to be like it was in the time of David, seeing oppressor after oppressor, corruption after corruption. And so inside of their hearts is this desire for a a deliverer. And so this, this idea of a Messiah starts forming around deliverance from oppression, cleansing of the temple, and possession of the land. And so what was in the mind of Peter and all of the other uh, Jews was this desire, this hope, that someday soon God would bring a righteous king who would be a reformer of, of, of the practices, a purifier of the temple, and a deliverer from all of these oppressors, especially the Romans. And so that's what's in Peter's mind when we come to this particular passage in our our book. They say, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, after you are the Christ, he says, the son of man must suffer and be rejected by the elders and the priests and the scribes of Israel and be killed. Do you see how there is this huge mismatch between what Peter's hopes would be and what Jesus says the Christ that he is would be? There's no discussion there of throwing out the Romans. There's no discussion of purifying. There's no discussion of ruling and, and, and accomplishing independence. No, everything about this description that Jesus lays is incompatible with what Uh, The Christ was supposed to be in the mind of Peter and John and all of the other disciples. Suffering and death was incompatible with the view of Christ in the first century. Yet, Jesus describes this fate of his as essential. He uses the Greek word day, which is translated must. The Son of Man must suffer. And when Jesus uses the word day, he is saying that this is a non-negotiable, this is essential, this is core. In fact, the word must or day, in some places Jesus uses the words, it is written, to describe what his mission is. It is written is what Jesus means by must. And when he says it is written, he is saying that scripture has already declared what must happen to me? I am a fulfiller of the prophecies that have been written. And so, so what prophecies is, is Jesus perhaps thinking about? Well we can go back to the very beginning of our Bibles and we can go to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, where uh, Adam and Eve have sinned, and uh, God starts laying out the, the judgment. And in Genesis 3:15 we are, are told these words from God. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, shall bruise your head, and you, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise, uh, he, your offspring, shall bruise his head, the serpent, and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel." So what we have here is is this first description of the gospel, of the suffering and and the the putting down of, of Satan. What we're told here is that one is going to come who will crush the head of the serpent. But in the crushing of the head of the serpent, he will also be injured. His, his heel will be bruised. There will be pain. There will be suffering attached to this great conflict. And so here we are, our, 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 is our first evidence that the one who is going to deliver God's people is going to do it through suffering. If we go to the book of Isaiah, we get an even more clear picture of the suffering that was to come. So let's look at Isaiah 53, 7 to 10. We are told he was oppressed, this is speaking of the suffering servant, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Isaiah 53 is a startling passage that if you've read Isaiah 53, you recognize the inspiration of scripture. Because it describes precisely what Jesus endured for our salvation. And it was written 800 years before those events. But in Isaiah 53, we describe, we hear and see in graphic detail that, that this one is going to suffer. He is going to suffer, and it is the will of God to crush him. That is the must of our passage, the word must is, it is the will of God that the Christ be crushed. This is complicated, heavy, startling stuff. But what it means is that Jesus' suffering is not a surprise. Jesus' death on the cross was not a mistake It was not a miscalculation. It was not the events of history causing a terrible fluke. What happened to Jesus was exactly what was supposed to happen to Jesus. What happened to Jesus was the plan of God. It was God's will. Now that means that if we are going to know the real Jesus, we must Recognize that his death is the crux, the essential thing that we must uh, face if we are going to actually know him. Because this is why he came. His purpose was always to die. And why he died. Is the crux. Let us go back to Isaiah 53 and read a few verses further. We are told in verses 10 through 12: when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Do you hear what Isaiah 53 tells us is the reason that this servant has to suffer? He has to suffer to be an offering for guilt. He has to suffer to bear the sin of many. You see, the reason that Jesus came to die was to be the sacrifice for our sins. That was purposeful. Number one, he became the sacrifice, the the, the perfect offering to God, a righteous man with no sin. He came and put himself in the place of sinners to be the sacrifice that would pay for all of our sins and give us a clean conscience, a clean record, because our sins in Christ are canceled Because through Christ, as the suffering servant, they have been paid in full. That is why Jesus came. The death of Jesus declares then that sin is the world's greatest problem. Because that is the single thing Jesus died for. Now, through Jesus' death for sin... All things eventually get made new. But if we are going to go to the absolute essence of of what is the greatest problem in this world, it is that it has fallen into sin. The death of Jesus declares sin is the world's greatest problem. Consider, if if you would, the third temptation that Jesus faces in the wilderness before his, his ministry begins. In the book of Matthew, we are told what, uh, what temptations Jesus faced. And the third temptation, we're told, goes like this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This temptation is a fascinating temptation. What does the devil offer Jesus? He offers him the kingship of the whole world, right? Which is what Jesus is going to be given by the Father at the end of time. You will be the king of the world. And here Satan is saying, I'll give you what you're after. I will give you the whole world. All you have to do is is step away from your plan that God has given you and worship me. Now, in being king of the world, do you think, what, what, what could Jesus have done, king of the world? As king of the world, Jesus could have said, uh, no more war, no more war. Jesus could say, no more addiction. Jesus could say, no more poverty. Jesus could say, no more child abuse. Jesus could say, no more hunger. And all of those things, Satan would be happy to say, deal. You can have that world. You can have the world with all of the the wonderful things that that you think make the world good. You can have world peace. You can have everybody uh, um, uh, happy. You can have whatever you want. I'll give it to you right here, right now. But Jesus refused that. Why? Because all of that could have been given without the cross. And Jesus came to die on the cross because what he does on the cross is far more important And far more significant and far more necessary than any political reform, than any utopian reality that we can conceive. The destruction of sin is the most important thing. Nothing else should we ever prize above that is what the temptation that Jesus rejects is to declare. The cross is most important. Jesus' work in dying for our sins is more important because until the cross, the world, no matter how rosy, no matter how nice, no matter how pleasant we may make it, is still a world under judgment. Jesus died on the cross because he came to save the world, not improve it. Jesus came to save the world, not improve it. And so when we face this first fact about Jesus, the real Jesus came to die, the question for each of us is, is the cross central to your Jesus? When you look at what this world really needs, when you look at what your hope for this world is or your life is, is the first and foremost and gravest thing that your sins are forgiven by the cross? Or would you take one of those other offers that the devil said, I'll give you this if you don't take the cross? This is an important question because if we are following the real Jesus we must be committed to why he came above all other things listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 22 to 23 powerful verses about this issue. First Corinthians says, "For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You, you see, this, this whole mission of Jesus, This this laying down his life for our sins is a scandal to the way the world thinks. The cross separates us from the way the world thinks. The world thinks about power and prestige and political maneuvers. And Jesus came to say, that's not me. And if we are committed to the real Jesus, the Jesus that came to die, then our life must first and foremost be about pointing people to the gospel. Pointing people to the only hope that your sins are forgiven because Christ died and was raised from the dead. That is our breath if we are following the real Jesus. Now the second fact that grounds our faith in the real Jesus is the real Jesus is rejected by the world. The real Jesus is rejected by the world. Consider what Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by the uh, elders and the priests and the scribes. Jesus is saying that he is to be rejected by the very best and the very brightest in the world of that day. He is going to be rejected by the people who are supposedly most versed and trained to recognize the Messiah. And they're all going to come together and they're going to share their opinions about Jesus. And they're going to say he is false. And we are going to kill him. I I, I like how uh, James Edwards' commentary puts all of this into perspective. He says, The suffering of the Son of Man comes rather at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. It is not humanity at its worst that will crucify the Son of God but humanity at its absolute best. The death of Jesus will not be the result of a momentary lapse or aberration of human nature, but rather the result of careful deliberations from respected religious leaders who will justify their actions by the highest standards of law and morality, even believing them to render service to God. Jesus will not be lynched by an enraged mob or beaten to death in a criminal act. He will be arrested with official warrants and tried and executed by the world's envy of jurisprudence, the Jewish Sanhedrin. You can add to this the Romans who participated in the death of Jesus. They also were the esteem of of wisdom and justice and philosophy. They concur in killing Jesus. What this means is that Jew and Gentile reject Jesus as the Christ. The whole world voted no to Jesus. That is how he was crucified. The brightest and the best of the whole world said no to him. Now, maybe that's just 20 centuries of ignorance back then. I mean, we've learned a lot, we've done a lot better, we've we've advanced ourselves in almost every way. Perhaps you have in your thought that Jesus would be treated differently today, that our world would not respond to Jesus like the first century did. I mean, we're different, right? Well, I, I investigated the question that we are different, and I want to share two, two images that kind of came to the forefront as I was thinking about this. The first is, is this um, tweet exchange. Uh, this is between J.K. Rowling and, and, and another person. Uh, J.K. Rowling is the author of the Harry Potter series, uh, beloved story series. Everybody loves Harry Potter. And for the longest time, J.K. Rowling was kind of a champion of of uh, people who felt like they were on the outside, people who felt like they were uh, not given a fair shake. I mean, the whole story of Harry Potter is about somebody who's, who's on the outside who suddenly finds out they're, they're special. And so she's always been kind of this, this champion of the story of you, could, you, you are special. It's just a matter of being discovered that you're special. Well, over the last couple of years, she has said some things that uh, have not agreed with the, the transgender community. And so now, over the last few years, J.K. Rowling has been su- uh, submitted to a cancel culture campaign to try and stop her because they don't agree with her, her beliefs. What, what this is, is, is J.K. Rowling has been a champion, a, a person of, of, of great um, prestige on the left of, of the kind of dis- uh, cultural discourse. And yet, eventually, she has gotten to a place where the left have just turned on her because she has not gone far enough or has not said the things that they want to hear. And so uh, there is a tweet of, of, of one of her previous fans says that they wish that she could have a pipe bomb mailed to her. You, you see, J.K. Rowling has gotten to a place where even the people that used to love her have turned against her and are calling for her death threats. Now the next image, go to the right. You guys know what that image is for? That was to hang Mike Pence. Right? Whether you are on the right or whether you are on the left, it doesn't really matter. What is inside of us is still a zeal to destroy whatever Does not please us. And so, what we have here is clear evidence that inside of our hearts is the same spirit today that would crucify Jesus. Because Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 7, this about himself The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil the right and the left and everything in between will find something that they would hate about Jesus that would motivate them to act exactly the same way. Because Jesus is righteousness, and everything in this world, whether it comes from the right or the left, is tinged with unrighteousness and selfishness and personal ambition. Jesus represents judgment to every thought, every belief, and every way of life that seeks to exist without him. So it has no difference whether Jesus showed up in the first century or in the 21st century. His mission and his uh, result would have been the same, to be rejected by the world. Now here's where we need to do some introspection. If we are followers of the real Jesus, we will experience rejection too. Jesus says in John 15, 18 and 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If we are following the real Jesus who is rejected by the world, then Jesus says you will experience that rejection too, right? How will that rejection feel? I mean, that rejection can take on many different forms, and I don't necessarily want to extrapolate on how they could, could present themselves, but I think at minimum, the rejection of being part of the kingdom of Christ and not a part of this world is that there is a constant feeling that you are in exile, That you live not quite at home, not quite accepted, not quite uh, at peace with the world. You live with the unease that the world is not really your friend. You live like a stranger. You you, you come to experiences, you come to, to points in life where you are just not going to fit in because of your faith. And that moment is going to make you stick out. It's inevitable that you have stick-out moments if you are part of the kingdom of Christ trying to live in this world. So where are you experiencing hatred and exile for your faith in Jesus? Where are you feeling that exile, Because of your faith in Jesus. Man, I want to say to you, be encouraged by that. Because this is evidence that your faith is in the real Jesus. If your Jesus is the world's Jesus, you won't feel exile. You won't feel that differentness. You won't ever feel persecution coming after you. If you are following the real Jesus, be encouraged when exile and misfits and persecutions come because they are God's way of saying what what has happened to my son is happening to you because you are one of my son's people. But I must ask the other question. What if you aren't? Feeling like an exile. What if you aren't experiencing rejection? I think that calls us for self-examination. That calls us for self-examination. Listen, a faith that is not experiencing rejection from the world has adapted itself somewhere to fit in with the world. Have you chosen a version of Jesus that avoids rejection or that conforms to the world? That's what Jesus is saying when he says, get behind me, Satan, for you have set your mind on the things of men, not on the things of God. Have you perhaps, if you are not experiencing rejection or exile, have you at heart, made a Jesus that is more set to the mindset of the world than to the mindset of Scripture? That is a question that we must reflect upon, and our third fact drives us into it even deeper. So we have seen the real Jesus came to die, the real Jesus is rejected by the world, and third, the real Jesus corrects his followers. The real Jesus corrects his followers. So after hearing this from Jesus, Peter's knee-jerk reaction, and I love Peter that he he just blurts. I mean, I, I am a Peter. Peter rebukes Jesus. I mean, Peter basically says, Jesus, you're crazy. You're wrong. You're flat out off the rocker. Rebukes Jesus. I mean, Peter is like, don't ever repeat this. You're, you're going to kill the party. And in response, Jesus rebukes Peter in probably the strongest words possible. He says, Get behind me, Satan. He says the exact same things that he says to Satan in that third temptation. Be gone, Satan. Except here he says to Peter, his first disciple, get behind me, Satan. He is saying that his first disciple, the one who is supposed to know him the best, is an agent of his sworn enemy, is speaking the same deceptive trash that Satan spoke to him in the wilderness. Why is this recorded in Scripture? It is so embarrassing upon Peter. I think there is something here that is for all of us. Jesus' warning to Peter is for all disciples. And here's the warning. We can sometimes think we need to protect Jesus from the world's judgment by softening or explaining away something he said. That's fundamentally what Peter is doing here. He's trying to save Jesus' face from some of this crack pottery that came out of his mouth. Nobody is going to want to hear that, Jesus. That's going to kill your popularity. Just don't say that. Peter is trying to save Jesus from embarrassment because he is saying something that Peter knows will make people cringe. And so in this picture we see, I think, something that is a temptation in all of our hearts. We all want to take the things that Jesus has said that don't wash well in the world around us, and we want to soften them. We want to find some way to retract them. And we are in that space doing the same thing that Peter is doing here trying to protect Jesus from the world's judgment, trying to create a Jesus that the world will love. But hear me clearly. Jesus rebukes Peter to say, this is not our job. Making Jesus acceptable to the world is not our job. Our job is not to save Christ from suffering, but to join him in suffering. So Jesus corrects his first disciple and corrects him in stern language. Does Jesus, does the Jesus that you believe in, Correct you? Does the Jesus you believe in ever say, You are flat out wrong? Does the Jesus that you are walking with say, Repent? It is a strong sign that we believe in a Jesus of our own making if he never disagrees with us or if he never makes us angry. That's the Solaris wife in the the movie. The wife was just a memory, but it wasn't the real person. A real person will disagree with you. A real person will fight with you. That's what we all discovered when we got married, right? It's a wonderful relationship, but no relationship ever goes without disagreement. And the same thing is true of our relationship with Jesus. If he's real, he will disagree with you. His word will say something to you that you don't like. And it's okay to read his word and get angry. It's okay to argue with him. That's part of a relationship. But if there's no argument, then... What mind is your Jesus actually from? Is it from heaven? Or is it just your imagination? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. This is, this is what happens in a real relationship with Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. You see, a healthy relationship with Jesus is marked by frequent correction and repentance. Sometimes the Bible reproofs you. It just says, you are wrong. Sometimes it corrects you. It shifts you from one place to another. At all times, it is training you, saying that where you are is not where you need to be. And the the gist of it is, a real Jesus is changing you. Right? I shared a couple weeks ago the story of me running into that deaf girl and how I totally mistreated that situation. I, I, I just waved my hands, no, I, I don't have anything that, that I can do for you. And and uh, it, it was a really low moment. I had been walking with the Lord for Two or three years at that time. And somehow, I had kind of molded my faith into a a, a faith that that just didn't have much interest to consider panhandlers or people on the street. I just decided that my faith can be kind of, you know, get out of my way. And it just reflexively came out when this deaf girl said, "I, I need some help. And and it embarrassed me because the first time I spoke to her, she's like, I don't know what you're saying. So I had to gesture. I had to actually act out. I am not going to help you. And then I went in and sat down at a restaurant. It was a very nice restaurant. And as I was sitting there, the passage in Hebrews came into my ears that sometimes we entertain angels unawares. And to, to to always be kind to people because sometimes we entertain angels unawares. And when I heard that, I was so convicted that I had allowed myself to, to take a faith that says, I believe in Jesus, but to ig- ignore and to neglect someone that Jesus says, I brought this person to you. So I went out trying to find that girl. But she was gone. But you see, if if we are walking with a real Jesus, we will get called out. We will get convicted. We won't be told all the time, you're smart, you're right, you've got it figured out. Keep going. A real relationship with the real Jesus will bring his correction into our life. Beloved, rejoice in the Lord's correction, for it is a sure sign that he loves you. He corrects you just like a father corrects his child because he loves you. So the real Jesus came to die, the real Jesus is rejected by the world, and the real Jesus corrects his followers. Believing in these facts, living in these facts of the real Jesus is going to put you under attack. This is not the easy way. This is not the place of popularity. This is not the place of acceptance. This is a hurricane to believe these facts. And you face a headwind when you believe in this Jesus. So what can I offer you for encouragement? I want to leave you with Jesus' words in John 16, the words that he gave to his disciples before he was crucified. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Beloved, you are following the suffering servant and that means you will suffer. But the suffering servant has overcome the world. So if you hold fast to him, you will have his peace that will withstand whatever tribulation. Do you know Jesus? Every single one of us is going to face tribulation. Some of us are going to face tribulation in this world because of Jesus. Some of us will face tribulation in the next world because we rejected Jesus. The answer for our tribulation, whether it comes in this age or in the world to come, is to put your faith in the real Jesus. And he will give you peace and he will deliver you through whatever tribulation you will face. Beloved, believe in this Jesus. He is the forgiver of your sins, the ransom of your soul. He is the overcomer of your tribulation. Amen?